Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. So, it's the holiday season. I've been traveling a fair bit in the Middle East first, and now I'm in India. But before I left New York, I recorded this AMA, or Ask Me Anything. We've done one of these before, so you know the drill. My colleague Amelia Lester, FP's executive editor, puts your questions to me, and I try my best to keep up. As always, if you want to follow us live and in video, you can do that on foreignpolicy.com live. Subscribers get to ask questions and watch our library of interviews. If you want to do that too, sign up, use the code FPLIVE for what I believe is a very nice discount. Let's dive in. Well, hello again, Ravi, and hello, FP Live listeners. I'm so glad to join you again today. We got a lot of great questions, um, but one thing that really struck me throughout was this sense of the U.S.'s unsteady role in the world. It's stretched thin between these conflicts in Europe and the Middle East. It's looking over its shoulder to China. And that brings me to Kat Taylor's great question to kick us off, which I personally loved because I have a very short attention span. Kat asks, how would you define the Biden administration's grand strategy in one sentence? So I'll have to confess, Amelia, I did. This is the one question in this entire episode that I did prepare for. And the one sentence is this. We are in a new era of competition in an age of interdependence and America's in it to win it. That's my sentence. Okay. It's not super catchy, but unpack it for me. Well, so it's not catchy in part because some of those words are not my own. I mean, the line uh, competition in an age of interdependence, it comes from Jake Sullivan, uh, America's national security advisor. But I think what it gives away is that if there is sort of an animating feature of how the Biden administration thinks about the world, it is that between the Cold War and, say, five years ago, there wasn't that much sort of global competition And America still saw itself as this big, maybe even unipolar uh, power. China's sort of arrival has contested that. But America kind of sees the world as a world that's in flux. And the reason why I ended that sentence is very long, cumbersome, clunky sentence that you would have no doubt edited down. And I ended it with America's in it to win it. I think whichever way you slice this, it's very clear that it still wants to be number one. Whether it's a multipolar world, whether it's a bipolar world, America wants to use whatever means it has at its disposal uh, to dominate. And that sense of winning it, um, which in a sense uh, has been underway for a while, even with the Trump administration, but really under the Biden administration, I think it's quite clear that that's how they see the world. Yeah, as an editor, what I'm struck by is that it is clunky, to use your word. And I guess that's because it's kind of hard to actually define what the Biden administration's agenda is. And as you were suggesting, there's a lot of competing um, imperatives there as well. On that note, Larry Epstein asks, is nearshoring for real or the flavor of the moment? I think it's for real. And I think that's another sort of underlying kind of impetus for a lot of thinking that the White House does about the world. And I think really one way to see this is the pandemic, which just stunned, I think, people in America in that there was this immediate fear of, oh my gosh, we don't have enough masks. And who's making the masks? China's making the masks. 
And you can pretty much draw a straight line from that realization to now that kind of animates how America thinks about reorienting all of its supply chains, not relying too much on China or frankly, any other country for anything. And that's what nearshoring is about, really, not just for America, but for every country to try and make sure that you're diversified, you have supply chains that are more robust, there are backup plans and backup plans to those backup plans. And so every country now is trying to nearshore or ally shore or friend shore, however you want to put it. And I think America's best place to sort of win that battle as it tries to sort of, you know, divide up the world into allies and non-allies and, you know, bilateral relationships and this sort of lattice work of of kind of multilateralism layered on top of some of America's sort of best friends. And just coming back to that first question for a second, Amelia, part of the reason why all of this is so hard to explain and it's so clunky is because I think we're at a moment where American foreign policy is a bit contradictory. In fact, it's full of contradictions where you often hear of talk of sort of aligning democracies against autocracies. It's one of President Biden's favorite sort of catchphrases. But then that runs into reality. And then, you know, you see him fist bumping uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So those kinds of contradictions, I think, make it much harder to see a through line on how the White House sees the world. Staying on the White House for just a minute, um, we are already unbelievably in the midst of another presidential election cycle. Kenneth Shad wants to know, can the rule of law survive a return of President Trump to the White House? I mean, the jury's out, really. And, um, you know, I think literally there are juries currently (laughs) debating this. Exactly. And I think we have to we have to listen to what what Trump is saying. And I think, you know, what he's telling Americans quite clearly is that he's willing to break rules. Um, He doesn't care about the rules. And so I think, you know, instead of asking whether the rule of law can survive if he returns, I think that question is something Americans need to contend with before the election, not after the fact, because it is something that American voters have a say in ahead of time. Um, But were they to choose President Trump, I think, you know, a lot of rules go out of the window, uh, not just in an American sense, but I think especially for FP listeners and watchers, for the global rules-based order, for multilateralism, uh, a lot of assumptions about how the world works could go out of the window. And it's hard to imagine how one survives that or protects against it after the fact. One thing I'm curious about when it comes to the 2024 election is, do you think that the Israel-Hamas war and the Biden administration's response to it poses any kind of problem or, or changes President Biden's chances of re-election? Because my sense is there has been a real shift on the left of late on this issue. And I'm wondering if you think that might affect turnout from his base. Yeah, it might. I mean, at the very least, it might affect energy in terms of how willing people are to turn out. Turnout is such a big deal, I think, in American elections or any elections, frankly. Um, But there has been a change in the mood among uh, younger Americans, Arab Americans, Um, A lot of uh, Americans on the left who, you know, find uh, the Biden administration's policies in the Middle East to be problematic. I mean, we had Columbia University's Rashid Khalidi on this program, and and he gave Biden an F minus on how it's been handling events in the Middle East since October 7th. So um, I think it's a tough moment for the Biden administration, but it's also important to not 
overreact to it in terms of what it means about how Americans feel. Because in this moment, they're judging how President Biden has has conducted policy in the Middle East. But one year from now, it's a very different assessment. It's not just how he did, but how would the other guy do? How does my life change were, were we to have a different person? And in this case, President Trump come back. Uh, what does that mean? So when we discuss, say, Arab Americans, for example, yes, they're very angry at, at Biden. Um, but the alternative one year from now could well be um, the person who enacted the so-called Muslim ban. So one imagines that this debate and this choice will be framed quite differently uh, 10, 11 months from now than it is right now. We have to spend some time on the Israel-Hamas war. Rehan Walgama asks, what might happen next in that war? Should Israel maintain troops in Gaza or will it remain under Palestinian control? Just an easy question to set you off. Easy with. question, isn't it? I mean, yeah, this is something all of our, our writers and experts have been debating on our, on our site, and I sort of defer to them on, on this. But, you know, what's clear is that there are no easy answers. I mean, one thing that really struck me over the last few weeks is um, when we had former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak on this program. And, and he said that when I put to him that Israel could lose global public support, it's losing the battle for public opinion uh, the longer this war goes on. And he said, that's OK, We're, we've calculated that. We know that that's going to happen. And that tells me that you know, Israel's choices um, are going to be made because in a way that sort of really, I think, prioritizes their sense of security. October 7 just shattered the Israeli sense of security in their homeland. And it's really important for those of us not there, not in that place, to try and imagine how they're thinking about preserving uh, or reinstating some sense of security. And I think that sort of instinct is paramount above and beyond everything else for them, whether it means maintaining troops in Gaza. I think the war there is going to go on for a while because eliminating Hamas is not easy, if at all possible. Um, but whether it remains under their control or Palestinian control, I think that's that's a bigger open question. And if there's one thing that I can mention to people watching or listening to this to read on our site right now about this, it's a roundup that we published yesterday where a number of experts was, were asked simply two questions about this. How will this war end? How can the next one be prevented? And there's a huge diversity, obviously, of perspectives um, from many sides in that article. Raj asks how the US and the West can project themselves as champions of human rights and a rules-based order when thousands of Palestinian children are being killed and the population is displaced. I mean, the simple answer is they can't. I think we were discussing earlier some of the contradictions within American foreign policy and how America projects itself to the world. This is one of them. And it is events like these that I think, shine a very harsh spotlight on America's choices around the world. And in a sense, hypocrisy is not new. Double standards are not new. But I think in the last few weeks, the rest of the world is making the case that it is now clearer to them um, that America and the West more broadly, they have less right to discuss human rights issues when they aren't seen to be doing enough to help 
the thousands of Palestinians uh, who are uh, dead so far in Gaza. The world wants to see America do more. And I think it will remind America of this when other conflicts emerge in other arenas around the world. Danny Barr asks an interesting question. Why is it acceptable for some to call for a ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza conflict, yet simultaneously to insult those calling for a ceasefire in Russia's Ukraine war? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, Well, I think for starters, you know, Israelis will say that calling for a ceasefire is is not acceptable at all. And they've said that um, to the United Nations uh, Secretary General, for example, who has been calling for a ceasefire. And he's come under a lot of criticism in Israel for that. So um, there isn't sort of unanimity in calling for a ceasefire, even in the United States, um, where the White House has not called for a ceasefire. It's been asking for pauses. But let's contrast that with uh, what's going on um, in Russia's war in Ukraine. I think the key difference there is that the Ukrainians themselves have not been calling for a ceasefire. I think, you know, over the last, what, 20 odd months now, they're the ones who've been saying, uh, we have a chance of winning this. We will fight to the very end, man, woman, and child. And I think for anyone who's tried to call for a ceasefire, I remember, you know, the Indonesians at one point called for one, uh, the Brazilians have called for one. Many other countries have tried to negotiate and get the two sides to sit down. But whenever they've done that, the Ukrainians have always responded with, you know, are you crazy? What gives you the right to do that when we still think we can fight and win and we want to do that and we want your support to do that? So I think that that really, to me, is the key difference here uh, between the two. And of course, the Palestinian people here aren't always represented by Hamas, right? I mean, Hamas, as we know from polling, um, was not. Uh, particularly popular in Gaza um, before October 7, that might have changed now, but certainly not anywhere near as as popular in the way that President Zelensky is uh, in Ukraine, where you really get the sense that tomorrow, if the government decides to call for a ceasefire, the people will fall in line. Yeah, it sounds like they're not actually going to have an election next year. I think I believe the Ukrainian election was scheduled for early next year, but they've come out and announced that that's not happening um, Lisa Aronson wonders whether the U.S. should discontinue its support for Ukraine. This is obviously something that um, some factions in the Republican Party have been pushing for. I'm curious for your position on that and and what you think the war's expected trajectory is now that it does seem to have settled into something of a stalemate. So uh, I think having supported Ukraine for so long uh, to suddenly reverse course uh, would really show up America in in a very bad light around the world. I mean, all of the arguments it's made so far about sovereignty, about democracies and autocracies. I mean, we've been talking a little bit about hypocrisy and American credibility. Were America to reverse course on this one, it would have very little global credibility left. So I think for that reason alone, wherever you stand on this spectrum, that is something that Americans really should mull and consider. It's very important how the rest of the world thinks uh, about American stability in the global order. But all of that said, I think even if America purely looks at outcomes and what is a preferred outcome for it, 
Russia winning this war can certainly not be seen as a preferred outcome for American interests in Europe, for American interests around the world. And for that reason alone, America needs to stay invested in Ukraine. Now, the question is how and in what way? And, and that is a big debate that we're probably not going to resolve now. Should America be pushing the two sides to sit down? Should it continue to support Ukraine militarily? There are a range of options there, but but not engaging with those options, I think that would be a bad call. And then we have Kathy Long-Holland, uh, Tawalde Gabrasli, Nora Lester-Murad. Um, all of these people asked related questions on how FP covers these wars. Kathy asks, how do you keep the coverage current on both Ukraine, Russia and Israel Hamas in an age of headline-driven news? And I'm going to combine that with another question, which is why does FP use the phrasing Israel-Hamas war? like everyone else? What was the process for deciding that terminology? Yeah, I mean, you were involved in that process, Amelia. And really, I mean, it's it's the Associated Press's guidelines. Uh, you know, very close followers of our website will know we use AP style across the board on our site. Very rare occasions that we break with it. And usually AP follows quickly when we do. But on this particular instance, um, it just seemed like the right phraseology. It's the phraseology that the Associated Press uses. Many of our peer publications use the same phrasing. Uh, it instantly explains what it is. Uh, given the number of casualties on both sides, it's fair to call it a war. So that was some of our thinking behind it. But in terms of how we keep the headlines fresh, how we think about our coverage, those are big, tough questions. But one thing I'm grateful for is that you know, a lot of our readers tend to have already read a lot of the news. And so they're coming to us for a little bit more for analysis and expertise. And the cadence of that is a little bit slower. It allows us to be a little bit more deliberate, to think a little bit harder about, you know, what are we missing? What is everyone else missing? And where can we add value? And that honestly makes, I think, our jobs uh, a lot easier. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website. That's foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE, one word, for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to move on to the global south and Dario Polsky posed a good question, which is how do you see the so-called global south evolving in 2024? That's a great question. I mean, I feel like the rise of the so-called global south, which kind of includes most of Asia, all of Africa, Latin America, 
the rise and the collected sort of activism uh, of the countries there to band together and make certain demands, whether it's, you know, at the climate summit at COP, whether it is for loss and damage payments uh, over climate change, whether it is to sort of ally together uh, and make a case for something at the UN. The Global South has really emerged as a an important power center. And I think, you know, part of the reason why it emerged in the last couple of years is because um, they sense a moment where, you know, American power is in relative decline. China isn't quite there yet. And so they see a lot of space to try different things, to try and form new alliances, to try and see if they can make a case for some of the things they care about, to test the waters, as it were. And if you see all of that as a trend, so if you see relative American decline as a trend, which I think it is fair to say, uh, given not only the rise of China, but given the rise of other countries, um, such as India, the growing importance of countries like Nigeria or Indonesia or Brazil, if you take all of that together and you see it as a trend, I think it's only fair to imagine that the global South as a block will become more influential. I think the question is whether they stay united as a block, whether a lot of fissures will emerge within the bloc's countries. China, which, you know, it's debatable whether it is part of the global South, it's a middle-income country, um, but some would say it's too rich to be in the global South, too powerful to be in the global South. But if if conflicts emerge between, say, China and India, or China and Indonesia, then you could imagine a scenario where there are deeper fissures between these countries, which makes it harder for them to present with uh, a single voice. But either way, I think the trend line to me is clear. And I think for America um, and for the so-called West, they're going to have to find new and better ways to engage uh, with the global South, whether they like it or not. Yeah, a piece that really stood out for me recently on this subject was about COP28 um, by Manal Shahabi. And she was arguing that basically the global north had alienated the global south before COP28 even began. And in fact, the global south was really excited about this COP. They saw it as the first COP where they might be more fully heard. And it was a reminder that sometimes the way stories are framed, particularly in an American context, isn't how most of the world sees it. Mm, Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something that countries of the global south have been advancing as a narrative as well. An interesting question here from George Wang, who asked what you think is Xi's agenda next year? Well, to quote James Carville, I think it's the economy stupid. I think, you know, if if the story of 2023 for China has been uh, its economic troubles, and that kind of is the backdrop to every other big decision that China's made, I think it's very clear to me that Xi Jinping is going to focus a lot on trying to rejuvenate the economy trying to make sure that it's credit crunch, whether it's employment, uh, other aspects, the real estate bubble, they're going to try and look at various ways to solve that, to calm that situation a bit, and to ensure as a result of that, that there aren't distractions that can be avoided. And I think if you look at how when Xi Jinping met um, Joe Biden uh, in San Francisco at the APEC meeting, Xi Jinping, you know, began to admit, I think, for the first time, um, that America's export controls, the chip restrictions were hurting China. And so, uh, in a sense, if China is seeking more stable, less bombastic ties with America, 
It's because it wants to stabilize the economy. So for me, that is definitely going to be the key sort of way of looking at every single thing that Beijing does in 2024. Ron Winship wanted to know what you think China could possibly gain by attacking or invading Taiwan. Well, I think quite a bit. Um, you know, for one, uh, this is something that has long been promised to the Chinese people. So if Xi Jinping were to uh, manage to successfully uh, take over Taiwan, it would be seen as a huge domestic internal coup of sorts. This would solidify um, Xi's cult of personality and his legacy in a sense. But then there are also like other things that are quite unique to Taiwan and that this is 23 million people who are highly productive. Um, it's a it's a pretty powerful high income economy that were it to sort of be seconded to China would be a huge boost to Chinese power, Chinese influence. And then I think lastly, what it means for China's image and position on the world stage, um, which we know, of course, is something that Xi Jinping thinks about a lot in terms of exerting power and influence around the world. And I think, of course, all of this is only stuff China would gain if uh, such an attack is successful. It may well not be. And there may well be serious costs that the West and other countries would impose uh, upon China. And that really is the contest here. So I've just listed out one side of the equation, but the other side is all the stuff that the West would do to make it unpalatable for China to think about attacking uh, Taiwan. And often Western strategists link the importance of continuing to support Ukraine militarily with sending a message to China about the costs that it would impose if China were to invade Taiwan. So it's it's interesting to see those two um, mm. in concert with each other. Um, Paul Hill wonders, with the Russian and Chinese demographic imploding, what country stands to weather the global population decline the best and perhaps economically, militarily, culturally, be seen as the global community's leader. My first thought on this was surely the U.S. will continue in that role, but I'm curious whether you agree with that. Yeah, I think the U.S. as well. I mean, so American fertility rates are probably more European uh, than, uh, say, African, of course, but America benefits immensely from immigration. Um, hundreds of thousands of people move here every year, and many of them are younger than the median American, so that, in a sense, kind of revitalizes uh, American uh, demographics, even as Russia's and China's get worse. So I do think America is a, a big uh, global beneficiary in that sense, in relative terms. Uh, but then there's also India, there's uh, Nigeria. And I think both of these two countries will see huge population booms. Uh, India already has to a degree. It's now the world's most populous country at about 1.4 billion. It's expected to jump to about 1.8 by the end of the century, peaking around uh, 2075, 2080. And then Nigeria's population, which is around about just under 200 million, is expected to triple, maybe even quadruple by the end of the century. And I think size matters. It allows a country to, you know, have a, a much bigger economy than it would have if it was small. I mean, again, look at India. And that gives you a lot of clout. So I think th those are the countries, the faster growing ones, even Bangladesh to some extent, that could benefit in a world of fewer people. These population shifts, I know, aren't the only trend that we're watching here. One thing that we do pay close attention to is this global decline in democracies. So here's a good question for you posed by Shrikant Asha, which is, what is the future of democracy? That's an easy one for like a one minute answer. 
Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, Thumbs up, I would say. Um, Look, and it's it's, 2024 is a year of elections uh, um, for people following. Our next print issue is all about the elections that are taking place in 2024. More people will vote next year than in any year uh, in the history of the world. And I think next year will, in a sense, do some work towards answering that question about the future of democracy. Um, It's not just the American election, but India, uh, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Pakistan, a lot of big democracies uh, go to the polls. And there'll be a lot of signs there to look out for about whether democracy can emerge from some of the challenges that are posed to it by nationalism, by populism, by myths and disinformation, which are now supercharged by artificial intelligence. Can democracy withstand it? If it can, the future is good. If it can't, we'll know. Is now the time to tease our winter print issue coming out in January? Yes. And we have some terrific writers uh, in a special package in that issue. There is Leslie Vinjamuri at Chatham House in the UK, who kind of looks at how Uh, The U.S. election matters for the rest of the world in terms of alliances and the multilateral order, what it means for Europe specifically. Um, There's an Indian public intellectual, Prathap Bhanu Mehta, who writes about how all of the problems in democracy that we see around the world is in fact a crisis of nationalism. And that's a really good framework through which to look at Modi in India, for example, or Trump in the United States, so many other big populist strongman leaders. And then we've got uh, Jan Werner Mueller, who is um, a Princeton academic who looks at populism uh, and social media. And his point is just that we often see um, social media as inherently populist because a leader can connect directly with voters. And while that is the case, that doesn't necessarily mean that social media is going to doom democracy. In fact, he points out that there are ways to you know, firm up, shore up social media through um, platform intelligence that could make sure that, you know, you protect against some of these things, but also that we should look to old-fashioned forms of things that could protect us um, from populism, and that's political parties, boost the parties, he writes. I'm going off script for a minute to ask you about your use of social media. I don't use it much. Um, I That's not true, Ravi. I'm looking for one answer. You love LinkedIn. I like LinkedIn. I was going to say LinkedIn is earnest. It is, um, here's the thing. So in as much as there are all of these anonymous people on social media and you don't know what they're going to say and some of them are trolls uh, and it's hard to feel safe among them. I think LinkedIn, uh, there's a higher degree of safety for me. I mean, you can look at where someone went to school and where they work and you know, you're probably like two degrees connected from their their bosses and their colleagues, and you just feel a little bit more confidence that people are going to behave. And that discussion is a bit more civil as a result of that. So yeah, for me, very much as your your typical earnest rule follower, uh, LinkedIn is my cup of tea. Alison Malecki shared some kind words. She says, I'm so impressed with your ability to stay calm and neutral during conversations. And I have to second that. How are you able to put aside your personal opinions and execute interviews as thoroughly as you do. Well, well that, that's a big compliment. I uh, I try to be neutral. I don't know if I'm really calm. Uh, under the surface, it's like, a, uh, you know, like a duck furiously paddling away. But, you know, I think 
the privilege of someone who gets to host a show like FP Live is that we speak to really interesting people. And I've often found that you're learning so much when you ask them a big open-ended question that listening really is illuminating. And a lot of times agree or disagree. And there are times when you want to jump in and, you know, fight a little bit, joust a little bit. And I do that. But I've often found that especially for people who've done the rounds a fair bit and do a lot of TV and media. Um, it's only when you actually let them finish their thoughts and sentences that you you might learn something new as they do their thinking aloud. So for me, it's really important to get beyond the pre-prepared sort of soundbite and get people to think aloud and then let me sort of follow that as it were. I've heard both doctors and journalists say that the most interesting thing that people say is generally when they're walking out the door. Mm, that's a really smart thing to say. And I've seen that with, with a lot of people I've interviewed as well. And regrettably, sometimes it's after we switch off the cameras um, when they sort of open up a little bit more or they they feel like now they can speak freely. And I think the challenge of the interviewer is to is to get them to do that while you're still rolling. Yes, so I'm going to try and do that with this last question. Suzanne Kaur and Tracy Calver both wonder, are you more hopeful or more despairing that humans can even survive the actions of human nature given the state of the world from the wars and the pandemics and other human-caused disasters? I'm more hopeful. Um, I won't lie. I, I despair. I think the news cycle is awful. There are so many terrible things going on around the world. There are two big wars underway. Climate change is really hard to get to grips with. It's it's one of those things where you often get the sense that the world is really warming at a rate that we, we can't deal with, and it's going to create all of these unknown crazy conditions that will just make it harder for us to survive, will spark all kinds of global migration crises that will put at risk the world as we know it. I know all of these things, and I think because, and Amelia, you do too, but but given how much we are sort of stuck in the news, we know this more than a healthy, normal human being should. But I think it is also through following this that you can find some sources uh, of hope. And I think, you know, for example, there are all kinds of things that that enterprising humans and cities and countries are doing to try and fix all of these problems we're describing. I mean, we we could be close to getting a malaria vaccine. There are all kinds of scientific breakthroughs that are taking place around the world that could potentially improve our lives, improve uh, outputs of food that could make medicine uh, more effective, more likely to reach the last mile. As much as we discuss AI and all of its pitfalls, there are aspects of AI that will actually make us more productive, uh, that could improve our lives, that could make us more efficient. There are things to, to look out for that could also fix some of the biggest problems that we're confronted with. And I think ultimately what gives me hope is that the solutions exist. They're around us. We just need to get our act together. And, and to me, that that is the most doable thing, getting human beings to get their acts together, to sit in a room together, to talk, to debate and discuss policy. Uh, and in a sense, as, as an editor, I find that to be the most interesting thing that we can do, which is to host discussions and debates 
And to try and center, I think, the thing that makes us the most human of all, which is to try, to keep trying, to keep fighting, and to have a sense of hope. Well, that's a really nice note to end on. Thanks, everyone, for your questions. And I appreciate you tuning in. I'll see you on our next Ask Me Anything edition of FP Live, I hope. And that was me in conversation with Amelia Lester. Remember, you can also watch these conversations live. If you're a subscriber, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Lots more coming up next week with Stephen Walt looking back at 2023 and after that, looking ahead to 2024. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin and the executive producer of FP Live and Video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you 
occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.